Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Stephen Mill, CEO of CharityChannel.com. So, you want your charity to succeed. You came to the right place. Integration of online and offline techniques is the key to your successful fundraising, and practical advice on going green is what you need. With this show, The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, you will learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Our host is Ted Hart, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. This year, he is celebrating 25 years in the nonprofit sector and the 10-year anniversary of his firm, TedHart.com. His books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. His guests are leaders in their field who will share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management, green strategy, and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, here's Ted. And good afternoon. This is Ted Hart, and this is the Nonprofit Coach. We're back from our holiday, taking a couple months off for the summer, uh, eager to hear all about what you did to support philanthropy and to hone your skills for online fundraising and social media. Uh, make sure that you uh, uh, call in today for our very special page two guest, Beth Cantor, and that number is 347-324-3080. Again, this is Ted Hart. I am coming to you on September 14th. Uh, here from the nation's capital, and as always, we start with page one. Well, for those of you here in the uh, the northern hemisphere, we're uh, just wrapping up on summer, and it was a very busy summer. It took a little bit later on. Uh, for those of you who followed me on uh, Facebook or Twitter, you saw that it was uh, quite a summer for uh, for travel. And those friends uh, in the southern hemisphere, I know you're looking forward uh, to your summer coming up. We've got a action-packed show for you today. A terrific guest. I'm thrilled to come back from the break and to start our fall series here with Beth Cantor. Uh, so we'll introduce her in uh, in just a few moments. Uh, and uh, we've got a uh, another terrific guest here on page one. So as always, we start off with page one, and that's the page one news. First up here on the news comes to us from the Philanthropy Journal, and that is uh, an article here on social media, which is uh, marketing and social media continues to grow. And there's a recent survey by email marketing software firm uh, AWeber of over 2,500 small business firms, and oftentimes the for-profit sector is a leading indicator to what we can see in the nonprofit sector. And they found that nearly 70% of these firms are using some sort of social media tactics, and 77% indicated integrating email marketing and social media uh, as either a very important or moderately important tactic uh, for them. So read all about that over in the radio links. You can find the radio links at tedhartradio.com, uh, or you can go over to p2pfundraising.org. We are um, over at uh, tedhartradio.com. We are in the chat room. So remember, you can ask questions there, uh, or you can call in uh, once we get to page two uh, for our page two expert by dialing 347 347- 
324-3080. Uh, just follow the prompts to raise your hand to let me know that you'd like to ask a question and speak to our very special guest today. For those of you who are shy, as always, you can also email me at tedhart at tedhart. Dot com. Uh, up here next on uh, page one, it's just a reminder, I continue to be very impressed with the folks over at Pepsi, with the Pepsi Refresh Project. And just remind us uh, of how this project runs and the fact that uh, the next deadline for submitting your fresh idea is coming up on October 1st. The opening period will run from October 1st through October 7th. But keep in mind, they only take 300 ideas per round, and they'll close that entry point as soon as they get to 300. So let's just uh, take a little bit of a listen here to refresh ourselves on what is the Pepsi Refresh Project. Welcome to the Pepsi Refresh Project. This year we're giving millions to fund ideas that will refresh the world. Your ideas, voted on by the public. Here's how it works. Submit your ideas at RefreshEverything.com for a chance to win a Pepsi Refresh brand. Ideas can be submitted in six categories. Health and fitness, arts and culture, neighborhoods, the planet, education, food and shelter. Vote for ideas you care about at RefreshEverything.com and help them become a reality. Everyone can vote for up to ten ideas each day. Help promote good ideas using our Facebook and Twitter tools. The ideas with the most votes will receive a Pepsi Refresh Grant to make them happen. So could a soda really make the world a better place? With your help, it will. What do you care about? Join the Pepsi Refresh Project. Thousands of ideas, millions in grants. Every Pepsi refreshes the world. One love, one blood, one people. Very impressed. Uh, the current uh, round of voting, for those of you who would like to uh, vote, uh, started on September 1st. The finalists were announced, and there's $200,000 that's available. Uh, there are 252 uh, projects uh, in the running in this round with 48 days left to vote. Uh, grants will be made in the $5,000 category, 10000 25000 and 100,000. So bravo to the folks at Pepsi Refresh, but for all those charities out there that are interested in possibly uh, uh, earning some of this money and to get your uh, supporters to vote for you, make sure that you enter your fresh idea on October 1 for the next round. You know, this uh, never uh, seems to be any good news when it comes to tax law, but over at the Chronicle of Philanthropy, our next uh, item here up on page one is that the New York Governor, David Patterson, has signed a law uh, into uh, a new law uh, that now limits uh, charitable deductions for high earners. And, uh, and I, I understand that, you know, uh, rich people, you know, they, they, they've got plenty of money. However, I am concerned, and a lot of folks are concerned, that residents in New York now are only able to write off 25% of their charitable deductions if they're in that upper uh, income category as opposed to the previous 50%. And could this have an effect on the amount of money that's being donated uh, in New York? Uh, I think absolutely. Uh, but more importantly, um, is this a harbinger for uh, continuing eroding of that tax deduction uh, available across the country. I think it is alarming. It is something
something we should all be concerned about. So read about that over on the Tax Watch at the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Again, all of our links are available in the radio links at tedhartradio.com. Hey, continued good news for the folks over at Facebook. Web users are now spending more time on Facebook than they are on Google. Uh, we've got a couple of stories here in uh, uh, in the uh, page one uh, for the uh, uh, for Facebook. Uh, and what uh, was just announced by Comscore in August is that U.S. web users alone spent 41.1 million minutes on uh, Facebook, which is 9.9, almost 10% of the entire web surfing time uh, in August was spent on Facebook. Talk about being sticky, uh, and certainly uh, for all charities to be looking at how does social media now fit within your fundraising plans. Uh, next up here on uh, uh, the Nonprofit Coach uh, is uh, uh, a very special project uh, here in the United States. We have just uh, recognized and honored the uh, uh, heroes and those who have fallen on September 11th, obviously a very solemn day uh, uh, in the United States. And uh, I, I'm hoping, again, uh, we're just back from the break, so I'm a little bit uh, uh, rusty here, and I'm hoping that we do have a very special guest here to introduce you to a project that he is promoting. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, we do have uh, David Payne uh, with us today. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, Mr. Payne, uh, who is the president and co-founder of MyGoodDeed.org and is the uh, supporter and promoter of the 9-11 National Day of Service, uh, is with us. Um, uh, David, are you with us? Yeah, hi. How are you this morning? Hey, I'm so glad that you're here with us on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, you're here on page one, and we wanted to invite you because we're so impressed uh, with uh, your efforts to turn really a day of national tragedy uh, into uh, something of value to, to the country uh, with this National Day of Service. So, David, uh, introduce yourself and, and, sh- and share with us your own personal tragedy of, uh, and connection uh, to 9-11 and, and what you're trying to accomplish with uh, 9-11 National Day of Service. Well, the, the nonprofit group My Good Deed was formed uh, uh, back in 2003 uh, uh, by uh, by by me and Jay Winnick. Jay, as you may know, uh, is a, f- a friend of mine who lost his brother, uh, Glenn Winnick, in the collapse of the World Trade Center South Tower. Glenn was a uh, a an attorney who worked uh, uh, just a block away, and but he was also a trained volunteer uh, uh, EMT, and so when, of course, the the uh, the towers were struck. He ran in to to help those in need and um, and died when the building collapsed. And they found his his body about six months later uh, with a barred medical kit by his side. And Jay was one of the fortunate ones because uh, uh, upwards of 40 percent of the 9/11 families never recovered any remains. And so you know we uh, Jay and I, along with other leaders in the 9/11 community, came together and uh, and developed the idea that September 11th ought to be a national day of service and remembrance as a way to make sure that something positive comes from the events uh, of 9-11 and the loss of so many lives. Well, I really uh, honor uh, you in putting so much energy uh, into this and to try to uh, turn a tragedy into 
uh, as you said, a national day of service. Uh, a good friend of mine, a good friend of, of many of ours, Bill McGinley, who is the president of the Association of Healthcare uh, Philanthropy, also lost a son uh, uh, in the World Trade Center on September 11th. So many of us in uh, the uh, the nonprofit sector certainly felt a, a connection there besides so many stories of people who had a strong tie uh, to, uh, uh, to September 11th. Uh, listen, tell us, um, you know, looking to the 10th anniversary, uh, hard to believe, 10th anniversary of this uh, uh, national tragedy, uh, what's planned and how can people get involved and how can we all support your efforts to really press this uh, issue of the 9-11 National Day of Service? Well, you know, for the 10th anniversary, uh, our long-term plan has always been to uh, organize the largest uh, day of, of service in U.S. history. And when I, when I say day, it really is meant to be more an expression of service. We we all want 9-11 not to just be an episodic uh, one day of, of engagement. We want it to be more a day when people commit to a, a, a continuation of service in their lives. You know, one of the really interesting things about this observance over the last four or five years as it's grown is that about 60% of the people that participate in our research tell us that they're new or relatively new to volunteering. So because of the impact of 9-11, it's drawing in a lot of people that are not the kind of the usual people that typically volunteer. So what we know is that if we're, uh, you know, intelligent about um, designing this observance, there's a chance that we can bring many more, um, you know, new volunteers, new, new, um, you know, charitable engagers into the process and, and, and have 9-11 be the catalyst uh, for them to get involved and hopefully stay involved over time. So, you know, that's our big push for the 10th anniversary. Uh, uh, we're, we're certainly uh, working already with the entire nonprofit community uh, uh, to, to, Get them ready because there's a lot that that they're going to need to do and that we're going to need to do to make sure good, that we can handle it. Yeah, David, that, that's a good point because uh, when you go to 911day.org, uh, certainly um, you've got folks who are volunteering, but also charities that they can volunteer for. Uh, the thousands of listeners that we have for the nonprofit coach, principally nonprofit executives, uh, speak directly to them in terms of how they can go to 911day.org and how they can connect with you to prepare their own volunteer opportunities uh, for 9-11-2011. Uh, yeah, if it, you, you make a great point because we did launch a brand-new uh, website at 911dayofservice.org and 911day works too as well. And uh, it's essentially sort of like the e-harmony of, of charitable engagement. It, it allows an individual to, to, to find and adopt a charitable cause for, for 9-11. And, of course, the way it works is that we want to try to connect that person with the cause and, and keep them involved over time. Uh, and every single 501c3 is listed, you know, in, 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 you know, in the system. Uh, it's, it's, it, it's a site that was developed in collaboration with GuideStar, Network for Good, All for Good, and Hands-On Connect along with My Good Deed. So the nonprofit organizations between now and the 10th anniversary should definitely go to our site and, and check out their current profile, which is going to be pulled directly from whatever data they presented and submitted to GuideStar itself, uh, and then and update that information and start looking at ways in which they can um, uh, put on their best, you know, their best face for the 10th anniversary through our site. That's terrific. Well, I cannot thank you uh, enough, David Payne, president and co-founder 
of mygooddeed.org, and specifically today talking about the 9-11 National Day of Service, which charities can find at 911day.org. We encourage all the charities to be thinking ahead uh, to 9-11-2011 in terms of how all charities across the country can use that day as a national day of service to continue our efforts to turn tragedy into great works uh, for this nation. David, thank you for joining us today here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thanks again. I really appreciate you having me as a guest. Next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach uh, is uh, the continuation of page one. Uh, just a, a quick note here, uh, my, uh, my summer travel was really uh, quite extensive, much more than I, uh, I had certainly planned. I had about 40 days of, of travel. Uh, I had my first round-the-world uh, uh, trip. I've uh, traveled to uh, a number of other uh, countries, but typically I go there and back. And this summer, uh, thanks to uh, the support of uh, many good partners around the world, uh, I was able to uh, lecture and travel uh, to uh, New, uh, New Zealand, on to Australia, to Singapore, uh, India, where I spent several days with the South Asian Fundraising Group, on to Munich, Germany for meetings, and then a lecture in uh, Budapest. Uh, came back to the United States and then did a three-city tour uh, in South Africa uh, with the group Sangonet, and I was very pleased to uh, uh, be able to work with them in Johannesburg, Durban, uh, and Cape Town. So it's very, very busy, and, and apropos here on uh, on the uh, page one for the nonprofit coach uh, that we do have in the radio links today, a press release from Comscore that shows that Facebook has now captured the top spot among social networking sites in India, uh, and even more significant is it is up 179 percent uh, from the previous year. So uh, again, around the the, uh, the world, uh, Facebook continues to be a very strong player in the social uh, media uh, marketplace, and certainly uh, something that we talk a lot about and follow here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, next up in the radio links, you'll find uh, what I call a blast from the past. Uh, just taking a peek. Uh, into some historical archives here, and I just thought it would be fun to uh, roll the uh, the clock back to June of 2006. Put your thinking caps on here without cheating and clicking on the radio links right now. Uh, who was number one uh, in the uh, social networking properties uh, in uh, May of 2006, May, June of 2006? Uh, and the answer to that is MySpace. And wow, is MySpace surprised to find that uh, the group that was in third place way back then, Facebook, uh, is now the world's dominant 800-pound, 900-pound gorilla uh, in the social networking uh, space. So read all about that, a little bit of uh, historical information there from the archives looking back at May, June 2006. Last up here, uh, before we get to our very special uh, guest, uh, who is launching our uh, 10th anniversary uh, this year of TedHeart.com and my 25th year in the nonprofit sector, is Beth Cantor. And Beth Cantor uh, will be available to take uh, your questions today uh, at uh, 347-324-3080. You can also email me at TedHeart at TedHeart.com or join us in the uh, uh, the chat room and you can ask questions over there. So last up here uh, is uh, a very uh, a good article, and I always like their graphs because they're so easy to uh, understand over at Marketing Sherpa. And what we have today is their new graph uh, showing the increasing reach 
uh, through social sharing. And I am always looking for what is that return, where is the payoff for being involved and investing in social networking. Uh, all of us know that this is not a direct line. I Facebook, therefore I fundraise is not a true statement. Uh, but where is the payoff? And it really is about improving your odds. It's about building community. It's about in increasing those relationships. And what we see uh, in this new chart over in the radio links um, is the, uh, the research um, that has been done that shows that extending the reach of email content to new markets is really one of the, um, the, the most important strategies in the use of social media. That's followed by increasing brand reputation and awareness, followed by that is increasing the ROI of email programs. So social media by itself is not a solution. Email by itself is not a solution, and offline fundraising is not the solution. It really is, as we have said, over and over again here on the Nonprofit Coach. It's all about integration of the tools that are available for you. Well, I am very excited here. We're wrapping up uh, page one. We're going to go on to, uh, uh, to page two. Again, our uh, 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 guest here will be available at 347-324-3080. It is now time for page two. <laughs> I'm always very impressed with the work of Beth Cantor, but I am so honored to have her choose to be our page two guest today here on The Nonprofit Coach. A terrific opportunity for us to get a chance to chat with her. Uh, Beth is very, very busy. Not only is she the chief executive officer of Zoetica, uh, but she is a very, very avid and one of the earliest bloggers uh, in the nonprofit sector. Her, her blog is extremely popular. She has worked in the nonprofit sector for over 30 years, so nice to, to, nice to have somebody on the show who's been around longer than I have. Uh, a frequent contributor to many nonprofit technology websites. She has looked to uh, both in the nonprofit and for-profit expert uh, as an expert. Uh, I was very, very blessed to have her include and write our top chapter uh, in our new book, Internet Management for Nonprofits, uh, which just came out earlier this year. And she is very much riding uh, high on her own uh, uh, success of the launch of the networked Nonprofit. So uh, please uh, join me in welcoming our very, very special guests today here to the Nonprofit Coach, Beth Cantor. Hello, Beth. Hi. Hi, Ted. Thank you so much for that great introduction. And I yeah, hope Beth. that you can hear me fine. <laughs> I can hear you. Go right ahead. Great. Well, I'm so pleased that you've chosen to uh, to join us. I know your schedule. I, you know, I was uh, talking a little bit about how busy I am, but my schedule pales in comparison uh, to the number of requests that you receive and the the network that you have uh, have developed. And and uh, I'm just thinking in terms of uh, uh, my page one uh, news, which I know you got a chance to. Uh, 
to uh, listen to. And there are two aspects that I want to sort of explore with you. The first is um, because of your longevity and because of the extent of your knowledge, I'm just wondering if you can reflect back to uh, the very early days of the use of the Internet uh, and the rise of social media for nonprofits and kind of give us the, the timetable of uh, how you identified so early on uh, that this was a trend that was going to be in, in, important and what this really means to all of us. Oh, boy, a trip down memory lane. <laughs> um, well, um, I, back in 1990, believe it or not, um, but the first 15 years that I spent in the nonprofit sector up to about 1990, I worked in um, marketing and fundraising uh, with different nonprofits, and then I uh, was a consultant, and I did a lot of research. And somewhere around 1990, I discovered a modem. Um, uh, and, um, and I was doing some work at the MIT library, and I um, met some geeks who told me about bulletin boards. I don't know if you remember those, but you... I, I, I'm just going to stop you for just half a second because I'm kind of smiling over here, uh, thinking in terms of maybe some of our younger colleagues. I often joke in, uh, in my presentations, I ask people if they remember newspapers, um, and people usually chuckle about that, but uh, remembering a modem. Uh, right. Right. No. No. And, and remembering DOS. <laughs> so anyway, there were bulletin boards that were sort of the pre. You know, if you, if you weren't on a university and couldn't get on the internet, you could dial into sites and talk to other people. So I just thought it was really amazing that I could connect out, you know, to the fireman BS um, bulletin board in Cambridge or a disability board in Cambridge or one around the world. And, um, and then I got completely obsessed with this thing called the Internet. And I um, heard about a project that was being started at the New York Foundation for the Arts um, and, and um, called ArtsWire, which was to be, at the, uh, you know, an online version of The Well, which was a text-based discussion board uh, for artists where the uh, and arts organizations. You, you are reaching into the archives. These are all, <laughs> you know, Really, really concepts that have moved on to museums at this point. Absolutely. So I applied for the job not knowing, you know, a modem from a microwave, believe me, <laughs> or, or anything. Um, I was not at all technical, but um, they had a job of uh, uh, network builder. And so I got a chance to work alongside techies and learn about the technology and then turn around and teach it to artists and arts organizations. So it's sort of like a turnkey trainer. And, um, and at that time, the big thing was um, we start, started off uh, email. I was running around and telling people, get rid of your fax machine. You don't need your FedEx account. You need email. And people are saying, I don't need that. Why do I need that? And have to say, well, look, you don't have to spend the money uh, in FedEx, and it's quicker and it's easier. So I caught a lot of uh, email um, 101. And, ha um, and then in the middle of this, the web happened. And I, this was like 92, 93, and I remember doing presentations with a dialogue and showing people, look, this is the World Wide Web, and they go, the World Wide what? <laughs> and I remember saying in like 93, 94, everyone's going to have a website. It's going to be like your business card, and people looked at me like I was nuts. And Absolutely. I, I remember <laughs> those days. And, and, and bringing us, uh, connecting that to nonprofits, how, how did you see that, or did you always see that this was a, a natural progression for charities? I, I saw it as a natural progression, um, and, I, I, and I spent many, many of the early years was 
uh, a lot of teaching and education and explaining and demystifying it, making it fun. Um, I, I spent many years um, after ArtsWire, uh, the New York Foundation for the Arts had many arts and technology projects, so I, my next role was to be a circuit rider. Okay. Um, and so I just literally put 100,000 miles in my car and drove all over New York State, and I would go to different rural arts councils, and I'd come in and, and teach PowerPoint lessons, teach how to build a website, you know, whatever they needed. And there was actually a whole uh, group of us doing this kind of work um, in different sectors. And it was, uh, we called ourselves circuit riders, and that eventually morphed into Enten or the Nonprofit uh, Technology Conference and the whole professionalization of the nonprofit technology field. In the early days, we were looking at um, how can we leverage the Internet for advocacy um, and for um, campaigns. And I even remember doing in the very, you probably remember this as well, in the very early days when uh, online fundraising started back in, what, 94, 95? Yeah, that was really, really early because, of course, uh, where where everybody started to uh, to really stand up and take notice was, of course, after September 11. But there were some early adopters, and it was very expensive back then in the 94, 95 uh, time frame for anyone to really be thinking about uh, use of, of the internet. So it really was for those who were early adopters and, and had the budget to do so. Yes, and I remember writing an article for the Benton Foundation because we're also working with them called, you know, uh, the, the online, the guide to online fundraising. And, I, and, I, and the first sentence, <laughs> I actually pulled up the article. It was from 93 and 94. It said, although it's in the very embryonic stages, <laughs> or, right, right. You know, the ability to raise money through the Internet is going to be a really important part of the nonprofit's uh, development office of the future. <laughs> Yeah, ab ab absolutely, and, and of course now it has uh, grown to now being the fastest growing form of philanthropy, and in a down market for philanthropy, the Internet has moved on to be such an important uh, platform, and, and that's from those very early days. Of course, you, you built um, uh, your expertise, and you, you've been here with us uh, from the very early days when I founded the uh, uh, the E-Philanthropy Foundation in, in 2000 in my first book, Fundraising on the Internet, came out uh, just after September 11. We all looked really smart because it was already written by then. Uh, came out October uh, of uh, 2001. Of course, you were already well-established um, in, uh, in, in the sector and certainly one of the thought leaders uh, in that area. Um, what did you see? Because you mentioned advocacy and you, in those early days, and I'm just kind of bringing the, 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 the timeline uh, forward here just a little bit. Um, the advocacy, of course, was one of the, the first uh, adoptive areas in terms of building that sense of, of community. When did you become uh, very much more aware of the fundraising aspect? Well, it was, well that I kind of morphed into that from, I, I'd say, early 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, is the era of the strategic technology plan. I don't know if you remember those as well. It was a period where... Uh, you know, it's, that we, it's not just the Internet. We also have to think about all of the technology in our offices. Like, we, can't, we should be using those 10-year-old computers. We need to get you know, new computers. We need hardware, software. We need databases. We need um, the technology to support our mission. And um, so then I sort of focused in on, you know, so how do you craft a, um, a strategic technology plan 
and uh, what are the issues around adoption, what are the issues around training, uh, what are the issues around uh, figuring out what the workflow is to get the right um, core uh, software to, do, to run your organization, whether that's a, you know, a database for clients, whether it's a fundraising database, some sort of integrated database. So did that for a couple of years, and then sort of moving it forward, it seemed like the, as the field expanded and we started to see more and more people show up at the NTC and more and more people join N10, I started seeing like special niche technologies, like the arts community would have its special types of software packages. These would be maybe ticketing software and environmental right. Right. We had so many in those early, I remember uh, uh, the, uh, the New Orleans um, AFP conference uh, uh, way back in, in uh, 2000 uh, was, uh, um, or actually 2000, yeah, 2000, 2001, uh, were really the first time that we saw technology in a big way. Of course, BlackBot had been around for a while, and they gobbled up a, a number of their, their competitors, but there really wasn't any sense of any technology really using the Internet. Um, and one of the things that I always reflect on is up until that point and really in the, the decade that we've been in right now, Charities were used to nothing more than what I call hand-me-down technology. Absolutely. As you said, the 10-year-old computers, the, the hand-me-down selectric uh, typewriters. And oh, no, or the, um, I call it the Computique, you know, the <laughs> Apple <Exactly. laughs> the, the, um, the, the, the computers that were over five years old. And so in the technology plan, you had to um, introduce the concept of life cycles. And exactly. It was, unheard and, and, of. it was unheard of to buy a new computer. It was just so far out of the reach of, of most charity managers to even think in terms of technology. And now all of a sudden they're thrust into uh, needing to understand the set of technology. And I think that's been the struggle of, of the last decade is, is while we've been marching on, you know, from, from websites to online fundraising to social media, looking at mobile, all this technology, I think a lot of charities still feel that they're struggling with understanding what does this technology actually mean. Yeah, that and how to, and, and also, uh, uh, this has changed quite a bit. I mean, at TechSoup Global, and uh, a lot of the big players in the nonprofit technology field have really shown the leadership and point of the light, but um, I think the perception has changed from that, um, you know, that it was not an essential, it's not like a light electricity, that it was this luxury item. Take a second, Beth, just because you, you brought it up. I'm very, always have been impressed with TechSoup, and now with TechSoup Global, I was uh, very honored to have the opportunity to help make the announcement in South Africa um, uh, with uh, SangoNet that now the South African partner as part of TechSoup Global uh, will be known as Sango Tech. And that was just uh, just announced during my my visit there. Uh, tell tell our, our listeners here for those uh, who somehow have been living under a rock and are not familiar with uh, with TechSoup. Um, help everybody understand just because you brought it up, and I, I consider it such an important asset of the nonprofit sector right now. What is TechSoup, and how charities can access that? Oh, oh well, you know, you really need to have Daniel Ben Horn <laughs> on your show as one of your guests, or Rebecca. Uh, and since it's so important and, and you brought it up, I, I want to make sure that we answer our own questions. Absolutely, question. absolutely. Well, I think uh, TechSoup is one of the go-to places for nonprofit um, technology folks. So they have the online um, uh, one-stop shopping for information, and that's uh, TechSoup.org. 
And TechSoup Global is, um, they, they started a partnership, I don't know, five or six years ago with Microsoft to, to create a network to distribute Microsoft products at a lower cost for nonprofits. And yeah, very low cost. I mean, now it's, it's down to just an administrative fee of, I, I think, $24 or $25. Uh, for the suite as opposed to, you know, on the market, maybe six to $800. Absolutely. So, and so they have built an amazing global network of partners. Um, and, and you saw the one in South Africa. I've been to their partner in India. Um, I've met, I've, I've been with their partner in Australia. Um, I've actually met the partner in Sangonet. They're in Eastern Europe. Um, they're literally all over the world. So, so um, they have the ability to uh, assist Microsoft to get its product out to nonprofits. But what they've also done that I think has been so fantastic is it doesn't just stop at Microsoft products. They're using that global network that they've built and the infrastructure to get many other software packages out there. So, I mean, it's a, an incredible resource for nonprofits. I mean, I'm, it really I'm seeing is their for all of our every list. day. <laughs> yeah, and, and Beth, of course, we have a, a global um, listening audience here uh, on the Nonprofit Coach, both live today and all of our shows are podcast and available uh, at any time at tedhartradio.com. And uh, so all of you who are listening around the world can find your local provider through TechSoup Global at TechSoupGlobal.org. Uh, but Beth, back, back to you um, in terms of your expertise. I want to make sure that uh, we put in a, an appropriate plug for uh, two very important books. Uh, one is uh, uh, Internet Management for Nonprofits. Of course, you, you wrote uh, our premier chapter in that book, so thank you very much. And, 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 you, and, know, and you know, I wrote that chapter while I have to tell you this. I was, uh, you know that I moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. In I know we March miss you here. Yes, in March 2009, and um, I was commuting between uh, Boston and California, and the day that the chapter was due and a couple weeks leading up to it, I was, you know, packing up my house. <laughs> waiting for the moving van, and the last thing I, I allowed them to pack with my computer so I could finish off that chapter. <laughs> well, and, and, and a little secret from uh, from my side uh, then is, of course, uh, anyone who's uh, written a book like that, and that was my my sixth book, always provides good lead time. And I and I do have to say that on that deadline day, even with your move, you were the only author that made the deadline. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it's just like, you know, I have to do this. Exactly. Well, I, I appreciate you, and and of course you you've uh, you not only helped us uh, support that book, which is which is doing very well, and we're very very uh, pleased with that book. The content is is phenomenal, and the, 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 we have more than 20 authors uh, in that book. Of course, uh, uh, you grace us with uh, with chapter one. Uh, but talk to me about what's happening with the networks nonprofit. What your goal of that book? It's, it it really has uh, a lot of buzz going. It's all over the internet. It really is a go to resource now. Uh, so talk to me. Uh, of course, feel free to put pl uh, plugs in for internet management uh, for nonprofits, but let's talk about the, no the network's <laughs> nonprofit. Okay, so um, the reason that I moved west was to um, d uh, take up the position, uh, was for a research fellowship at the David and Lucille Packard Foundation um, as visiting scholar for nonprofits and social media, which allowed me some of the writing time for the book that I co-wrote with Allison Fine. And it was great because it's sort of a culmination of the last five or six years of blogging and chronicling of stories. But um, the, the central thesis of the book is that uh, network nonprofits are 
Contrary to popular belief, are not nonprofits with an internet connection or a Facebook profile, but they are simple, transparent organizations that are easy for outsiders to get in and insiders to get out, and they engage people to share and shape their work in order to raise awareness of social issues, organize uh, communities to provide services, or advocate for legislation. So, and the other thing about network nonprofits is that they are absolute, I'd say, social media ninjas. That um, everyone in their organization has the expertise to um, scale conversations and make connections with people around their work. So the thesis of the book is that, in short, uh, nonprofits need to sort of stop working as single entities, single institutions, and work more like networks. Not only have a presence on Facebook, but work like Facebook. So if you yeah. can imagine. People may be asking, well, why should I, why should I do that? <laughs> and the reason for that is that when you look at the nonprofit landscape over the last 20 years, and I'm sure you've seen this, Ted, um, that the, you know, the number of nonprofit organizations has dramatically increased. Um, there, there's a couple of studies out there, 60 or 70% over the last 20 years. And there's also been a huge investment in making nonprofits bigger and more complex. But at the same time, if we look at, have we moved the needle on solving social change problems, solving these complex problems? And the answer, sadly, I think, is no. And the reason for that is that in the complex world we're living in, um, to solve these problems, it's outstrips the capacity of any single entity, and it requires a networked approach. So if we take it down to the ground a little bit more um, and we take a look at an organizational chart for our traditional nonprofit and the way that nonprofits have worked over the last centuries, if you will, what, we'll, what we see is behind the firewall we might see different staff members working in isolation or, or in departmental silos. And then we have institutional logo, a huge firewall, and then reaching out to solve a single problem. And what needs to change is uh, working more in a networked way. So what that might look at, like, is behind the firewall you have staff working in cross-matrix teams with the ability to reach out and work in collaboration with their professional connections that they've connected with through Facebook or LinkedIn. The firewall becomes, you know, gets start moving an inch. The institutional logo, the institution's a little bit more porous and those insiders are allowed to get out and to hook up with networks of people and individuals to solve problems together. So we know in our personal lives when we want to make a change, we know change is hard, right? You know, think about it. I'm going to lose 10 pounds. <laughs> I'm going to stop eating chocolate. I'm going to stop yelling at my kids. I mean, change at a personal level is really hard. Now magnify that in an institution that's been around for 100 years and has a certain way of working. Change is hard. So in the research that we did for the book, well, yeah, go ahead. Well, it's hard and, it, and it's scary, I think, particularly for a lot of executives who have been around for a while. Um, and all of these new norms are, are, are coming into play here. And, and quite honestly, a lot of executives are just hoping it'll all go away or it'll be some sort of fad or, or something of that sort. And it, and it just, you know, uh, just puts fear in their heart to think that, you know, social media might actually be here to stay. Well, and actually that's who our book is um, directed at. Um, we had different um, reader – I'm sure you did this as well. You had a reader persona. That you, yeah. um, so our, our reader persona was um, Tessie Trepidatious. 
Okay, and she's been managing the same nonprofit for 35 years, and she knows there's this, you know, cell phone stuff, mobile phones, Twitter, Facebook, kind of knows it's, appreciates that it's important, but just doesn't know how to get started, and where where can she turn? So the book is for her, and it explains, it's part, um, you know, it's, it's part manifesto, but part really uh, explaining what all this is and how to get started. And how do you think about it on this level? Exactly. And I think one of the biggest challenges that so many executives have and, and that you really bring out in uh, the network nonprofit is this concept that you can no longer be, and I'm not sure that it ever was a successful model, but you've kind of got away with it, um, and sort of being this ivory tower, being this island of we are the cause, everyone comes to us, people donate to us. And unfortunately, donors now are online. Um, the, the norms and the expectation is that you are going to be transparent, you are going to be open, you are going to share information. And, and I think, as, as, as you point out and, and, and you sort of uh, focus on in, uh, in the network nonprofit, is this, this concept that there is interactivity uh, and that, as, as you said, and most of us in the nonprofit sector uh, believe that there are far too many charities uh, in the United States. However, that's about as far as you can get the agreement uh, to go because as soon as you start saying this charity stays and that charity goes, well, then you've got people up in arms to support even the smallest of charities that have very little resources and their reach is very, very small. Um, what we're finding now is I think donors are expecting that you are networked, you are available, that the information is there, and that you are connecting to other causes. And that's really, isn't that sort of a, a bedrock uh, position of the network nonprofit? Well, yes, uh, we have um, in the book, and, and we interviewed a lot of nonprofits, you know, some of them born as network nonprofits and others in the transformation, and it's a slow transformation. Um, it take, I say it takes a good three to five years, especially if it's an institution that's been around for a while. So we have a framework in the book, and it's kind of in two columns. It's the being column and the doing column. And the being column is all the hard stuff. That's culture change, simplicity, um, understanding how networks work, building trust through transparency, the listening, engaging, and relationship building, all the kinds of hard things. And the, on the other side are, are the doing, and that's the fun stuff. That's the paying, the poking, the friending, the crowdsourcing, all that stuff. And when we hear nonprofits say, you know, we tried social media and it didn't work, it's because they jumped into the doing before the being. And the being, you know, takes patience and um, stick to itness. Um, because as I was saying before, it's hard to change. But we do. The good news is that we pro provide a roadmap for how to do that. So a lot of the, what we talk about in the early chapters of the book are really shifts of mindset, mind, mind shift. Yeah. So for example, you were talking that, about um, limited resources. And that, that, and that, that is uh, very important. Beth, um, over in the uh, the chat room, would you have a question for you? Uh, Jeff uh, Janak from up in uh, uh, Canada uh, is asking if a nonprofit wanted to start in social media. What would be one key advice you would give or recommend or a place to start, especially if they're an older, well-established organization? This follows up on the point you were just making in terms of if they are a little bit older, more established, and maybe uh, just somewhat technophobic, um, how do they get started? <laughs> where, where do you uh, send well, them? Uh, in fact, I just finished a, um, uh, I call it a social media lab, and I've been doing them for clusters of grantees at uh, the Packard Foundation. 
So I was working with some children's families and community grantees, and the whole idea was, okay, we did, we talked about big strategy, you know, in the beginning, but during the course of this project, they would each take a small pilot and actually get hands-on experience in the pilot, set some specific goals, not have it be too big, be it very focused, and have metrics um, to measure it, and then to do a lot of the things that I describe in the first chapter of your book, Internet Management, um, the listen, learning, and adapting uh, process. And then I bring the groups together to kind of reflect and write up what they learned. So I, of course, had some organizations that fit the profile that you just described. And luckily, I had the leaders in the room along with their marketing staff person or their intern or whoever. And so one of them, I'll call her Nora, and she's wonderful. She um, came into the room, and she was a little skeptical. Um, she's of a certain generation, and she just was, you know, this is overwhelming, and where do I start? But, you know, I know it's really important. So what they did, they just started with um, spending um, an hour on Fridays throughout the summer just exploring. They chose Facebook and they explored what are the other nonprofits in our county doing on Facebook and what, what does it feel to be on Facebook every day just to have our personal profiles. And that's profiles. such a place to start. And when, I, when I'm lecturing, uh, Beth, I always uh, ask who has a profile on a social networking site, and then I ask who has one for your organization. And I make that very point that before you can, you know, start running and really start thinking about social media for your organization, you need to start a personal profile. You need to start learning the rules of the road. You need to be searching around and, as you said, looking for other charities, see what they're doing, how they're communicating, because it does require at its core for charities who have been very used to branding and wordsmithing, controlling every message, to learn how to be social again. Absolutely. That's just about right. And, um, and to Jeff's point also, I think that, there may, be a, there may be an issue around leadership being so concerned with it, and there's a lot of um, some myths, some things that are true that sort of fly around social media, as we were talking about earlier, you know, I've information overload, the fear of making mistakes, the line between personal and professional, uh, get, you know, control of our messaging, uh, what if someone writes a nasty comment, um, what if we put ourselves out there? Um, Beth, I think you just, you, just, you just listed the top five reasons <laughs> that people are very fearful of this. Um, and how, how do you answer those fears? Because I think they're genuine. Uh, I think they're very deep-seated, and I think it does keep um, folks from really moving into a very important and powerful medium. Well, my, my response is, and I say this a lot when I'm doing presentations, is that we need to wrestle those down to the ground. Imagine two big, fat sumo wrestlers. <laughs> and, but what happens yeah. is when, when these perceptions come up, we treat social media skepticism or technology skepticism like, you know, the black smoke monster on Lost. I don't know if you're a Lost fan. Or, the, you know, if you saw the blob from the 50s or the attack of the killer tomatoes. Think, you know, a 50s horror film and people running and screaming. We all become silent. We don't talk about it. So I say that you need to take these perceptions, facts, and myths and have that discussion. It should be a conversation starter. And um, if yeah, there's absolutely. also a leader that's hesitant, maybe they're not. Maybe they need a peer, or they need another, you know, a peer group or a coach to show them the way. Maybe it's their teenage children. They need to get some yeah. hands-on experience. I think about Andy Gow. I, 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 I um, think it is that. 
hands-on experience that, that they really need to start getting. But one of the things that I share that, that tends to at least put it in perspective, doesn't necessarily answer the question, but one of the things that I share is that people are going to talk about you online in social media whether you're there or not. And are you going to be a trusted, stable voice in this medium? Or are you just not going to be there? Well, you know what? That, and it's starting to happen. And then what happens is the angry crowd will, will be there without you. And I'm thinking exactly. about, actually, a one disease group, okay, who um, a national group that has chapters. Um, they um, had a role of recommending particular treatments. You know, we, we recommend these five treatments. And, um, and so what would happen, what happened was there was one experimental treatment and people started posting about this on different Facebook pages. And it escalated, and it escalated to kind of a backlash against this particular, um, uh, disease organization, disease research organization, to say, how come you're not telling us about this experimental treatment? You just, you don't want to see the world, you know, you don't want to see this disease gotten rid of, you just want to continue getting you know, big money from pharmaceutical organizations. And it escalated um, into mainstream media, and it, it turned into a big crisis because the organization hadn't had a presence, but they didn't have a way to respond because everything had to be vetted. And, they didn't, and so right. what this caused was a rethinking of their mission. Um, exactly. Well, and 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 in, in the incorporation of these tools, because what most people don't understand is that the tools can't work for you unless you have built the social capital and are credible in that community. Uh, Absolutely. That you can't just urge in a. Yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> We're just agreeing on the same point. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> You can't just barge in and say, you know, okay, everybody, stop what you're doing. We're, we're the experts here. Um, the, the, the rules have actually changed in that even big brands are at risk unless they take the time to actually build the credibility in these new tools. It's that, and it's also the cultural piece, too. Because part, oh, yeah, of, building, for, for part, part of building the credibility is being able to respond exactly, without, exactly. without having to wait biggest, for it to be edited for six weeks. Right, and that's really one of the the uh, the, the biggest challenges. Uh, keeping an eye on uh, on the calendar here, we are on the uh, the clock here. We do have another question here, Beth. What do you think about tweetathons, uh, twistifuls, uh, and are they good for organizations? And do they end up hurting the organization, especially if organizers get sponsors? outside the organization themselves and muddle the donation area. And here we go again in, in sort of this expanded world. Uh, and one of the things that, as you know, the, the book uh, just prior to the one that you wrote for uh, with me, Internet Management for Nonprofits, is people-to-people fundraising and this concept that charities now in this social media space, in the online space, have to learn to let go and have to begin inspiring people to be able to take action on their own behalf to support the charities that they want to support rather than absolutely everything having to go through the charity. And it's a new world that is very scary. So can you respond to this specific question about um, uh, Twitter? Uh, sure, sure. And uh, having been a free agent fundraiser, I think I won the first online contest, the Yahoo for Good in 2006, 2007. And I, 2007, and I wrote actually uh, widgetfundraising.org. I wrote a case study about that, and have gone on to raise you know hundreds of thousands of dollars for uh, to help Cambodian kids, but not as the staff person at the organization. So your, the specific question about you know do these online voting contests are they do they help or they hurt? 
And my, my feeling is that it kind of depends, and I think it's important for organizations that if they're going to participate, that they do the equivalent of a ROI analysis. Uh, think about, you know, is this worth it before they enter the contest? You know, it is really easy to enter these contests, but you really have to really think about, you know, first, the contest sponsor, you know, um, does, is it in line with our, um, our values? You know, do we have a relationship? Um, the benefits, can, do we have a reasonable chance of winning? Um, are there benefits beyond the money? Can we leverage the awareness that happens? Can we leverage um, the new donors that we might get? And then you also have to think about the costs and the cost, you know, do we have the bandwidth to actually do this? Could, could this contest um, encourage donor fatigue? Um, how does this contest fit within our overall fundraising strategy for the whole year? You know, does right. it, and, and, it distract that, us through our big uh, campaign, you know? Well, and that's where your concept of the, the network nonprofit and people people fundraising and, and the, the phrases that, that you and I have, have developed and, and, and have, have talked about is really where the key of the Internet now um, starts integrating with what is a tr- traditional sense of, uh, of nonprofit fundraising is that you don't have enough staff and you don't have enough time and that you do need to be empowering people uh, to be volunteers both online and offline and through this interactivity that you're able to do more and to reach uh, wider audiences. I, I, absolutely. And, and when I sort of having brand ambassadors, <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. If, if, if you think concept. about a, uh, I think about it on Facebook. There's a continuum going from somebody who's going to give you a little bit of attention by liking your page and go on up the ladder to become super fans who's going to go and tell all their friends on Facebook about you and encourage people to go to your events and give money. So how do you and how do you get that person from that little bit of attention to like really being in love with you? And it's a, a process and it's a ladder of engagement. And it is a process, and this is your life's work, uh, Beth Cantor, and you have really been uh, a leader in all of these concepts and really paving the way for charities to understand how these tools can work. I can hardly believe uh, that uh, our time is almost up, so I'm going to give you an opportunity uh, to share a a final word of wisdom uh, from Beth Cantor. Rare do people have the opportunity uh, to have this time with you, and so I appreciate those that have asked questions and uh, all the thousands who are listening to us today. Uh, Beth, what is the essence of, uh, of success from, uh, from Beth Cantor's uh, point of view for nonprofits? What do they need to do to succeed online? Um, well, I'm going to channel Yoda <laughs> for a bit. Um, you know, you can't ignore social media, um, and you must begin, but you can begin um, with small steps. So I'm at the, and you can take years to do it. You don't have to go from zero to 100 in the first two months. But I would like to encourage nonprofits to to take small, incremental steps, learn from them, um, and and, and to open up from this kind of scarcity thinking to the abundance that having a networked approach can bring to your organization. Exactly. And, 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 Beth, you have done so much to help charities understand how to succeed online. I can't thank you enough for joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach. Beth Cantor, thank you very much. Great. Thanks so much. 
right, we're uh, wrapping up our time here today. Just to let you know that uh, I will be uh, in Atlanta on Friday and Birmingham, Alabama, uh, lecturing on Saturday. I will be right back here on the Nonprofit Coach next Tuesday. Uh, check us out in our very special page to speak. Uh, uh, will be on uh, uh, Tuesday, uh, and uh, please check us out at Ted Hart Radio. Dot com. Thank you, everybody, for joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach. Great to be back. We've got a full fall for you. Uh, see you next, uh, next week right back here on The Nonprofit Coach.